0: Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show, episode 157. I hope you're all doing very well. And uh, before we get into the questions, let's see who all is there on the live chat. I can see Sumedha, Tarun, Jigar, Bigya, Jai Ghuman, Aniket, Raj, Shivagami, Devi, Swapnaneel, Bra, Challenge Accepted, Explorer, Bhavya Prathod, Charge13x, Liger, Kuldeep Shardul Parth Bhavanendra Dwij Shashank System Tools Om Bakerikar Abhineet Mayur Karan Harsavari Aman Mao Zedong Vikash Kitten Vinod Patil Rahul Mahajan Sakul Shubhajeet Dharmendra Dante Uttam Krodh Feminist Slayer <laughs> Kostub Anuj Harvey Ropes Dungar Singh Chauhan Hello sir Good to see you again Nitul Das, challenge accepted. Manish, Jigar, Shiva Prasad, Shura, Ronak, Amar Singh, part, part, lots of parts. Hrithvik, another part. Giga, Chad, or something like that. System tools, Harmonica, Hero, Ketan, Karan, Jai Guman, Pikachu, Aman, Shubhajit, Explorer, Shashank, Melvin, Vikash, Shebin, Neet, Nikalna, Sanjay, Tanush, G. Winnie Deep, Deep, Vinod, Fatty just ate, Indian Citizen, Shubham, Napoleon Bonaparte is here, Brah, I'm Consciousness, Abhinav, Gaurav, Naman Panchal, Smart, Doug, Joseph Stalin, Samarth Acharya, Vault Gaming, and lots and lots of other people, Disha, Anuj, Shriyanj, Tanush, Krodh, and everybody else, thank you so much for being on the live chat, I really appreciate it, and thank you so much. Uh, with that uh let's get into the questions what questions do we have where shall we begin with the questions let's uh, start with this what do we have All right. right okay I need to okay so this is about the german foreign minister who came to india for the foreign ministers meeting the g20 foreign ministers meeting and i said that she was snubbed by india because she did not get a red carpet welcome and uh that's the, the this is the result of that this is just a some small sample of the comments that we got. Shrinu says that's not the reason for red carpet issue. The flight actually reached before half an hour, and this was reported by the German diplomat. Pratik says German foreign minister did not get a cold shoulder from India. She it was just her plane arrived ahead of schedule, and she couldn't agree to be on the jet until um, senior. Uh, dignitaries arrived to welcome her please fact check abhijit abhijit this is a mistake by your side the same the plane came early and preparations were not made all that abhishek says wrong info about german welcome you are compromising facts for speed of video uploads it seems siddharth says you jumped to a conclusion all those things okay so everyone over here is saying that the the uh uh, aircraft arrived early and that's why the the preparations were not ready and th- that's why the lady was given um, you know this lack of, of of red red carpet welcome. So okay let's let's remove this first of all. So let's understand something. The Indian government is not run by children. The Indian government, the government of India is not run by 12 year olds. You can see what is the status of a flight. Let me show you how it's done. <laughs> I mean, what are we? Are we 12 years old, all of us? Let's take a look at this open source site called Flight Radar 24. You can track the exact location of a plane the moment it takes off. And when a very senior person is coming to your nation, when an extremely senior diplomat is coming, the foreign minister of a nation, you keep an eye on what's happening and where the plane is. It is impossible for the government of India to miss the fact that the plane was arriving 30 minutes early or 72 hours early or whatever. The Indian government is not run by 12-year-olds. But maybe the comments, some of them are by 12-year-olds. I'm not sure. Yeah, So this entire matter that was later, the clarification was later issued that the flight came early. Do you know what it's called? It's called a face saver. The German government put out a statement that the plane reached 30 minutes or whatever minutes early. And that's why the arrangements were not ready. And the Indian government did not dispute the statement by Germany. This is called a a face saver. The Indian government allowed Germany to issue a face saving statement. But the Indian government is run, not run by children. The Indian government knew exactly where the plane was. If it was coming early, they would have known about it hours in advance. So these comments, I mean, <laughs> I, I missed, I, in the past, I said that Indians are less naive now. Indians are more mature in diplomacy and geopolitics. But clearly, clearly, I have to eat my words because that is not the case the indian government gave a snub to germany germany has been you know playing certain geopolitical games and uh, interfering in india's internal affairs and making statements about things that it, it has no business making statements about and as a result of that india has given germany a message by snubbing their foreign minister but not by not giving her the red carpet welcome that you would typically give a very high rank, ranking official And then Germany gave this statement to save face and India did not dispute that. So the message was given, Germany was allowed to save face. So please understand that if an aircraft is arriving 30 minutes early and if it's a very high-ranking person who's coming, the Indian government will know about this long in advance. The government is not run by children. Please understand this. Please grow up a little bit, I would say. (laughs) Next. Okay, Aditya says, uh, what are your thoughts on Modi Modi Xian in China? Aniket says, talk about PM Modi's Chinese nickname. atharva says, please make a video on Modi Laoshian. This term is quite popular in China. Vidant says, what is the meaning of Modi Laoshian? Why is it becoming popular in China? Okay, and this is just a sample of the lots of comments I've got about this matter. So uh, let's take a look at what this entire thing is about. So this is apparently a nickname that is um, that the Chinese uh, netizens use for Prime Minister Modi. And let's take a look at this. So, uh, This is an article on the diplomat, how is India viewed in China? And this is where it all started, the story, as far as I know. It's by a Chinese person. So let's go down, 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 and you will find the... Okay. In addition, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has an unusual nickname on the Chinese internet. Modi Laoshian. Laoshian refers to an elderly immortal with some weird abilities. The nickname implies that Chinese netizens think Modi is different, even more amazing than other leaders. They point to both his dress and physical appearance, seen as Laoshian-like, and some of his policies that are different from India's previous ones. In particular, uh, India, led by Modi, can maintain a balance among major countries in the world. Whether it's Russia, the US, or global South countries, India can enjoy friendly ties with all of them, which is very admirable to some Chinese netizens. So the word Laoshan reflects the complex sentiment of Chinese people toward Modi, combining, combining curiosity, astonishment, and perhaps a dash of cynicism. Uh, I've been doing international media reports for nearly 20 years, and it's rare for Chinese netizens to give a nickname to a foreign leader modi's nickname stands out above all others clearly he has made an impression on chinese public opinion so that's the deal about the chinese nickname for prime minister modi 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 Liaoshan. it is a it is a rather positive nickname they have given they typically don't even give nicknames to to leaders of other countries but for prime minister modi they have given a nickname and a positive nickname um an elderly immortal with very strong abilities, that sort of thing. And uh, this is uh, Bilibili, which is something like a Chinese version of YouTube or something in which you can see there are lots and lots of uh, videos about Prime Minister Modi. And uh, this is the automatic English translation. So the translation may not be entirely accurate over here. As you can see, we can change it back to Chinese and there we go. We try to change it to English. It will take time. So they clearly uh, are very curious about Prime Minister Modi and uh, seem to hold him in reasonably high regard. And this is another Chinese website, uh, Modi. Uh, this is a, another automatic translation, as you can see. Uh, Laoshan seems to translate into English as Old Fairy or something like that, or Mana Boundless. Um, so yeah it's it's an article that uh, talks about prime minister modi in a very positive way and it, it's it's clear that they have a lot of admiration for prime minister modi so that's the deal that's what this nickname is about first of all the chinese typically don't give nicknames to foreign leaders and they typically uh, histor- historically they have not had a very uh, positive view of india they have not really uh, admired any indian leader so this is the first lead indian leader in decades who has stood up for india who has been totally um, uncompromising when it comes to promoting and serving india's national interest he has turned india around from where it was in 2014 and turned it into the right direction india now means business indian diplomacy actually has a spine today so all of these qualities is it's something that everybody admires if you have a leader like that, even if your enemy nation has a leader like that, you may not like the nation, but you will certainly respect the fact that this leader is taking care of the country. And uh, so that's what the Chinese uh, nickname of Prime Minister Modi is about. It's a positive nickname. They they see him as an elderly and very wise and a very capable person. And uh, the fact that they've given a nickname speaks... To the tells us that they admire Prime Minister Modi. You will see such sentiments even among the Pakistanis. The Pakistanis have no love for India. We know that. I mean, most of them. Yeah, uh, Most of them have absolutely no, no love for India. But they still kind of feel a tinge of jealousy towards India for the fact that India has produced a leader like Prime Minister Modi. They wish they had somebody like that. So, yeah, that's the deal. With uh, about this this nickname that they have given, that the people of China have given to Prime Minister Modi. It's not the Chinese government that has given this name, this nickname. It's the people of China that have come up with this nickname for Prime Minister Modi. Modi Liao Shan means the Modi uh, elderly, immortal, or some kind of, uh, you know, person with supernatural abilities, elderly person, wise person. And overall, it's a very positive nickname. So it's, it's nice to see this interesting thing. And uh, you can read more about that online. Okay, this is uh, somebody from Armenia who has uh, written this. It's not really a question. It is uh, a comment. In historical Armenia, before the Armenian genocide, there were bosha communities. They were Indian originally, but Christians. One of them is this Armenian national hero, Sebastazi Murad let's take a look of at uh, uh, that on okay let's just google it and it will typically give you a wikipedia thing well, okay let's take a look why not statutory warning you can't trust wikipedia for uh, information about india anyhow this is about Sebastatsi murad uh he was born in 1874, died in 1918. Let's see what he looked like. He does look Indian. Definitely it's an Indian appearance. Yes, correct. He was a well-known Armenian fedai, means freedom fighter or suicide, uh, I mean, somebody who puts his life on the line, I guess, during the Armenian National Liberation Movement from the Ottoman Empire. He was born in, in whatever village, Govdun and all that. Uh, he he moved to Constantinople. He f- joined the Social Democrat Hung. Chakyan party and all that. He assassinated an Armenian former escaped to Greece, then to Egypt. It was a guerrilla and all that stuff. Yeah. So it's not surprising for me, at least that there are people in Armenia who have Indian origin, Indian ethnicity, people who whose ancestors came from India because see Indians have lived throughout central Asia in deep antiquity for, for, for millennia. Uh, You still find ruined Hindu temples in Central Asia. Uh, Armenia is not entirely Central Asia, it's the Caucasus region. Do we know where the Caucasus region is? In case we don't know, let us put the map on the screen. Where's the map? Here's the map. One second. So let's see where Armenia is, where the Caucasus region is. All right, let's zoom into Armenia. So if you want to find the Caucasus region, you go west from India. You get into the Black Sea region. There's the Caspian Sea on the right, the Black Sea on the left, and the region between these two seas is the Caucasus region, Kavkaz. And there we have the nation of Armenia. And you will find ruined Hindu temples in this region, in the Armenia uh, in the Azerbaijani capital of Baku which is not far from Armenia you even have a functional fire temple that was used by Hindus as well as Zoroastrians in in you know a few centuries ago i'm sure it's still a, a operational today uh so the central asian region has had an indian past a hindu buddhist past before buddhism existed it was a hindu past um and Indian traders they traded with this region during the the Turkic occupation of India during the Maratha era during the British occupation of India and before these the before the past thousand years of of foreign occupation of India um, you will find you will you will see that uh, Indian uh, Hindu idols have been discovered deep in Russia as well. And to reach Russia from India, you would need to go through Central Asia and maybe the Caucasus region. So um, lots of trading communities used to live here. And eventually they simply assimilated into the local populations. That's what typically would have happened. So that's why you have the Bosha community in Armenia. And obviously they were of Indian origin. And eventually they would have assimilated culturally and religiously, which means that they would have adopted Christianity. And they became Armenians and they fought for Armenia for freedom from the Ottoman Empire. So, interesting piece of history we have just discovered here. All right. next. Saif Mahmood says, I'm a big fan of yours from Bangladesh. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Uh, Recently, there's been uh, much discussion uh, surrounding the topic of the dominance of BlackRock Incorporated. It is said that BlackRock has a great amount of influence on the global economy thanks to its reach in the corporate industry across the globe. They have stakes in and massive control over almost so many corporations all over the world it's also said that they control the world is it true that they really have this power do they have more significant influence than anywhere anyone else interesting question blackrock is a major corporation and one that very few people somehow know about because they don't really produce anything it's an asset management company so they own stakes in in various other companies they don't really produce anything They own stakes, shares in various companies. So if you look at the top 10 banks in the United States, I think BlackRock more or less has significant uh, holdings in most of these banks. The top 10 banks in the US. So the entire banking system in the US is essentially... In some way or the other, owned by BlackRock or BlackRock has significant uh, stakes in there. If you look at the major news outlets in the US, Fox News or CNN or whatever else it is, most of them have significant... well blackrock has significant holdings in them interesting and not just the united states it's it's all across europe even in asia as well uh, if you look at uh, the entertainment industry hollywood etc disney or or comcast or or warner brothers or whatever uh, i i'm pretty sure blackrock has significant holdings in there as well when it comes to europe the various media outlets newspapers or or digital platforms etc BlackRock has a significant uh, interest in there as well, when it comes to social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever else, BlackRock has a significant hold on that as well. Australia also is deeply, you know, there's a significant BlackRock presence in Australia. In Asia as well, one, one hears. I'm not sure how deep it goes in India. I've not really had the time to look into that. But one, one must be aware of the fact that this is a possibility. Um, when it comes to the size, the size of BlackRock's overall holdings, it's I believe it's in excess of $9 trillion. Trillion, not billion or million, trillion dollars. So when you say nine trillion dollars, do you know, understand the magnitude of that? India's annual GDP is three point something trillion dollars. When you have assets in excess of nine trillion dollars, you are—you—it's—it's you, it's bigger than all the economies of the world, bar, barring the U.S. and China. So that's how large. BlackRock is and its holdings are. And since it controls significant portions of social media, well, it can influence social media. Since it controls all these news outlets across the world, it can control the messaging that's being given out in the global media. Uh, And since, uh, well, even companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and whatnot, it's, excuse me, Much of them have, uh, (coughs) so BlackRock uh, owns significant portions of these companies as well. (coughs) Excuse me. So yes, they have massive influence. They have massive control. Control and influence are different stories. Control, they definitely do have of many (coughs) corporations (coughs) across the world. And because they don't produce anything and because their logo isn't displayed all over the place like you would see other logos, that's why very few people know about the existence of BlackRock. But it's an incredibly large uh, organization, $9 trillion plus. That's incredible. That's humongous. That's larger than the GDP of India and other nations apart from the US and China. So very powerful. They can uh, control the messaging that comes out of the media. Uh, In the US... There are There is there's this divide, right? The Republicans versus Democrats. And some news outlets are pro-Republican and most are pro-Democrat. Well, BlackRock has has holdings in both sides, so they don't care. So they can put their message across out there. Um, and so clearly it's it's an extremely large and extremely powerful and influential corporation, organization, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so, yeah, they, they are more powerful than most governments. Yeah, that's, the, that's how the world is run. Interesting. Neeraj Deshpande says, I would like to ask something about the mainstream Indian media. Why does the Indian media not seem to understand and reflect the real stand of India on various geopolitical, national, international issues? It seems to always portray the Western side of the story. In order to succeed on various grounds, we must align internally on how we reflect the Indian interest our stand and direction to the world could you please shed some light here what are the different possibilities so yeah this is an interesting question i've i've, uh, I've remarked about this in the past that the indian media is clueless when it comes to geopolitics they um, they essentially echo the western um, the 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 the, the the message of the West and the perspective of the West. That's what is portrayed in the Indian media. I mean, I hardly watch news anymore because it's a waste of time. But one I remember a few months ago, I was in a hotel. I just randomly switched on the TV and I was watching some Hindi news channel in which they were reporting the, the Western perspective. That, you know, Russia is U- lose, losing and Ukraine is devastating Russia and all that stuff. Well, we know what the situation is right now. So, you know, the Indian media simply... So why is it like this is the question. And it's a good question. First of all, see, the Indian media, uh, there is an amount of, there is a certain amount of laziness there. Let's just watch BBC or CNN and then say the same things in Hindi. So it looks like we know everything. So they'll watch the BBC or the CNN or Fox News or Al Jazeera or whatever it is and then just regurgitated the same topic talking points in in whatever language in hindi or whatever but then we have the english uh, language indian media which also uh, repeats the the western perspective the western talking points why is that so one reason for this is that they don't have any experts see until until very recently the only understanding of foreign policy in the indian media had was pakistan foreign International relations means Pakistan. Indian foreign policy means Pakistan. It was all Pakistan-centric. So that's all they understood. They understand Pakistan reasonably well. But now that people have realized finally that China is a bigger threat and India is playing a bigger role in the global geopolitical scenario, the problem for the Indian media is that they don't have any experts. You watch any news channel or whatever, when they report about the stock market, they will bring in stock market experts. When they report about the economy or finance, they'll bring in financial experts. When they report about politics, they'll bring in political affairs experts who have spent their entire career studying and understanding politics. When it comes to geopolitics, they earlier used to bring in some people called strategic affairs experts. Now, they these these those people have been rebranded as geopolitics experts. But the problem is that there is no university in India or college that teaches geopolitics properly. There are some courses on international relations, but they are all, I mean, yeah, nothing impressive about that. So there are no real geopolitical experts in India, academic, who have studied it properly from an academic perspective and who understand what geopolitics actually is. It's all about actually understanding history, understanding the history of politics worldwide, understanding world history, understanding the history of various regions, understanding how warfare happens, understanding the nature of power. None of this is taught. You have various master's degrees in political science or whatnot. I don't know what they teach in there, but it's all pointless and useless. So the problem with the Indian media is that they don't know where to look for geopolitics experts. They typically would invite various uh, retired army personnel, generals, etc. But the the thing is that when most army personnel see, see the relations between various nations from a military perspective and from the perspective of strategy and tactics, mainly tactics, it's a tactical perspective that they have, so they will look at the map and they will talk about the, the, the hundred meters here of the border and this half kilometer there of the border. That's not how you say geopolitics. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem that the India Indian media is facing, and of course some some uh, some news readers have become quite popular because they have been covering international relations for a long time, and uh, but yeah they they their reporting are reporting of definitely. Uh, leaves a lot to be desired unfortunately so this is the problem so then they take shortcuts and they simply look at the what the western media is saying and they kind of repeat the same talking points Um, you will see that certain indian media media channels actually sent their reporters some reporters to to cover the ukraine conflict but they exclusively covered the conflict from the ukraine side of the of the fighting none of them was embedded with the russian troops so that we can get a two perspectives, a balanced perspective. No, they simply sent their reporters to the Ukraine side and they reported everything from there and they reported the great Ukrainian heroism and patriotism and all that nonsense. Well, the Russians are also patriotic and they are also fighting hard, but they did not report anything from that side. So it's it's one-sided coverage, very clear and very blatant. So then that raises the question of who is funding these media outlets? Where is the money coming from and why are why are they adopting this policy of of showing a one-sided perspective of the war? Why don't send three reporters on one side and three reporters on on the other side and show both perspectives? That would actually illuminate things way better and give Indians, the the viewers, the correct perspective. You know, both perspectives. What's happening on both sides? So, one uh, possibility is that they are just lazy. They'll just watch the English news western news and regurgitate the same talking points in indian languages when it comes to the indian media there first of all there's the lack of experts there are no real geopolitical experts in india there are a few but uh, i'm not sure what, what's happening with them i know a few that i i genuinely respect uh but most of them are not seen these days on indian media and if they are seen they are they're talking about something else so for the for, so there's a lack of experts, and the, then they they then they. Uh resort to inviting retired army personnel who have a very military perspective i'm not i'm not trying to denigrate any army personnel or any retired uh, army officers i'm not saying that all i'm saying is that they have a very military perspective a strategy and tactics perspective they may or may not understand the historical aspect properly geopolitics is all about history some obviously will understand it i'm not saying all of them uh, are don't Like that, so these are the problems, and then obviously, there's the question of funding where are these news outlets, media outlets, funded from? Where is the funding coming from? That is the biggest question you have to always ask yourself. Uh, so yeah, that these are the problems that that we are seeing in the Indian media, and uh, and of course, see, there is, I, I don't know of any course, university or college course in India that teaches the students what the national interest is. What is the definition of the national interest? It's not some vague term that everybody talks about and says Jai Hind. That's not how it works. The national interest has to be studied in detail. What are the components of the national interest? And every nation has different interests. So none of this is ever taught in the Indian education system. So then everybody has their own weird perspective of what what the national interest should or should not be. Um, It's not about slogans, it's about something else. So, these are the reasons why the Indian media often, if not always, almost always appears to be clueless and appears to be regurgitating the Western perspective. These days, we have a few few individuals who are taking a different track, but yeah, (laughs) all right. Okay I got a bunch of questions about this as well. Whatsal says the US is sending its ambassador to India after 2 years of, of uh, after a gap of 2 years to New What are your views on this? Is the US now seeing its national and geopolitical interests inclined with India or shall we call it the Boeing effect after Air India orders? And Siddhant says, could you tell us about the new ambassador selected for India by the US government? What are your thoughts on him? Also in relation to earlier thing you've said our elections in 2024 but it has already begun for our Western partners. Well, they are not really our partners. They are, yeah. So, yes, so we have this happening right now. Before we put that on the screen. So, uh, this person, Eric Garcetti, let's put that on the screen. Uh, Eric Garcetti has been appointed or is on the the verge of being appointed the U.S. Ambassador to India after a gap of more than two years, uh, roughly two years, they, they are finally appointing uh, an ambassador to India. And see, even before he reaches Delhi, what is he saying? Human rights to be the core of his engagement. What business does a foreign nation have talking about human rights in a sovereign nation? This is the problem with the US. They think they have the right to interfere and meddle in the internal affairs of uh, of other nations. So even before this individual reaches India, He's saying that he will have direct engagement with groups fighting for human rights in India. First of all, let's understand that the U.S uh, deep state, the Pentagon which actually rules the nation, has blocked the. US president from uh, making a deposition or, or putting a certain uh, perspective in front of the International Court of Justice in The Hague and accusing Russia of human rights violations because that will bounce back up on, that will blow back on the U.S which has committed much bigger human rights violations in the past century or so and even in recent times so the big one of the biggest violators of human rights in the whole entire world is the united states and they they will come here preaching human rights to india so they have the yes they are on the verge of appointing their, their ambassador to india is it the boeing effect it has nothing to do with boeing do they do they think that national and geopolitical interests are aligned with india their geopolitical interests are aligned with nobody when it comes to the u.s they their geopolitical interests are their own and they force other nations to align with them, and their geopolitical interests serve nobody else. So it is not that their national and geopolitical interests is is aligned with India, inclined with India, whatever. They would like to use India as a counterweight and counterbalance to China, as long as that serves the purpose, and whenever it's done, they will not care anymore. It is not the Boeing effect, because India has nowhere to go. There are only two nations that that, uh, produce... Uh, commercial, you know, high quality commercial aircraft, two companies, one is Boeing and one is Airbus. So if India says we will not buy your Boeing, they will say don't buy your buy our Boeings. Where will India go? So, so that's the deal. So it's not either of these things. Uh, it's not the Boeing effect. Uh, it's It's the 2024 effect. The US would like to see a weak government come to power in 2024. So they would like to, you know, interfere in India's internal affairs, in India's democratic process, in India's inter- electoral process. Uh, they would like to play this is what they call sub-national diplomacy. They would like to uh, rake up the issue of these fictitious human rights violations or whatever. They would like to meddle in India's internal affairs. And now it makes sense for them to send a chief meddler to India. So that's why they, they have appointed this individual. What's his name? Eric Garcetti. So he's, he's, he's making it very clear that his job is not to, um, to be a diplomat and bring the two nations together and whatever an ambassador actually is supposed to do. His job is to talk about human rights. It's going to be the core of his engagement. I think India should, re- should reject him as an ambassador if this is going to be the attitude of, of the U.S. Uh, anyhow, that's the deal. So it's about 24. It's about 2024. They would like to see a weak coalition government come to power to India. And they will, I'm sure, do their best to create trouble in India before the elections, in the build-up to the elections. Expect trouble. Expect more and more U.S. interference in India's internal affairs over the next one year until the next general elections happen. And expect uh, a lot of propaganda on the Western media and in the Indian media as well, including that publication I just showed on the screen, All right? They just says, "Why is it raining worms in China? <laughs> Why is China like this?" Let's take a look at this raining worm thing. Let's go to Google and search for it. I I, I heard about this thing. It's raining worms in China. China worm. One. Worm rain, let's take a look. Oh my goodness. Take a look at this. So it's been raining worms in China Lovely beautiful and and apparently these worms look like earthworms So that's what the question is about. Why is it raining worms in China? Why is China like this? Uh, You know in the past there have been incidents when it's rained fish fish falling from the sky in rain, raining from the sky. There have been times when it's rained frogs in various parts of the world. So in various parts of the world, you have rain of fish falling. In other parts, you have rain of frogs falling. There have been incidents in Japan reported about falling fish and all that. So let's understand why this happens. There is a phenomenon called a water spout. Let me put that on the screen. Water spout that back on the screen so it's essentially a tornado that occurs over water a tornado is like a giant vacuum cleaner it sucks things out it's in you know the heart of the tornado is in is it's a, is a region of extremely low atmospheric pressure so when you have low pressure everything gets sucked into it and it's a whirling tunnel so when this sort of phenomenon happens over water it sucks out It sucks up water and sucks uh, sucks the water up into the cloud and then the cloud moves on and eventually it will disgorge the contents that it sucked up, that the water spout sucked up. Uh, So when this water spout happens, like, like, like it's called, it's a water spout, it happens over water, it's a tornado over water. So when this happens over let's say a river or a pond or a lake or the sea, Lots of fish will get sucked up into it. And then eventually they will be, they will fall back to the ground, to, to, to earth, eventually. Because how long will they stay up there? Uh, so that's how you have rain of fish falling. Now, if this happens over a pond or a lake, you may have a bunch of frogs that get sucked up. And then eventually the frogs will fall down and obviously perish, unfortunately. That's how it goes. So you have a rain of frogs falling. And for some reason, it looks like this phenomenon apparently happened over a place where you had lots of worms. So then it it led to a rain of worms falling. And that that's uh, as simple as it is. So that's why it rained worms in China. It's a phenomenon that is very rare, but it's known to happen. It's been reported and recorded lots and lots of times. And it's not a great mystery. It's just because this process pulls up, sucks out, whatever it is, you know, the contents of uh, the water body, it occurred over. So if it happens over a place where there are lots of worms, it's going to be the worms that are sucked up and eventually disgorged somewhere else. So that's why you had a rain of worms in China. Very weird phenomenon, but it's not a big mystery. Okay, this is by Prakar Gupta. It's a question from Twitter what are your views on mexico's willingness to join the brics how come a country right next to the us border took such a bold step that is a direct threat to us hegemony well i suspect that democracy and freedom and human rights will soon come to mexico yeah uh see let's understand the history of the us mexico relationship There was a time when Mexico, the nation of Mexico, included California, included Texas, included Arizona, Colorado. All of this was taken out of Mexico through force. There was at least one war between the U.S. and Mexico. And the Americans annexed, invaded, conquered, and annexed all these territories. So Mexico used to be much larger. And it was defeated by the US and the Americans gobbled up all the territory, all this enormous territory. And then you have a straight line border between the US and Mexico today. So uh, the Mexicans obviously remember this. They obviously... And, and, you know, the Americans have this policy of not allowing any external interference in the Americas. They are supposed to be the only hegemon, the only great power in the Americas, whether it's North America or South America. And uh, they it's well known that they have funded various extremist organizations terrorist organizations drug dealers etc in central america south america whether it is uh, mexico whether it is uh, colombia and and so on it's well known it's it's part it's it's part of the historical record the cia and etc they all when it even when it comes to nicaragua etc They have interfered in the internal affairs of all these nations. And much of the drug trade that happens is alleged to possibly perhaps be overseen and orchestrated by various uh, elements within the United United States. uh, What do they call it? The deep state? Yes. So obviously these nations would like to be free of, of this hegemonic overlord. So maybe Mexico is taking a risk and maybe they, they have expressed their willingness and their desire to join BRICS. Obviously, it is something that will not please the U.S. very much. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a risky thing they are doing because they sit right next to the U.S. I'm sure you, I don't need to show the map where the, where the U.S.-Mexico border is. But just in case, just in cases, let me put that on the screen and show the map. Um, Google Maps, here we are. Let's go. Here we go. So as we can see, the U.S.-Mexico border has lots of straight lines. Uh, there was a time when Nevada, California, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, New Mexico, Texas, all of this, I'm sure even Colorado, if I'm not mistaken, was all part of Mexico. And the Americans took that by force. So, um so yes nicaragua guatemala honduras costa rica panama colombia ecuador peru all these nations are under us hegemony directly or indirectly mostly indirectly uh, so i think it's a bold step it's a, it's a dangerous step and uh, i'm afraid that human rights and democracy may soon visit mexico yeah one hope it one hopes it doesn't happen but yeah it typically tends to happen when you make such moves ok Sri Balram Putin says from 1933 to 1939 in just 5-6 or six years how did Hitler how was Hitler able to, make, to develop such a humongous scary military how strong was he when it came to leadership so Hitler was first of all let me just put this disclaimer in, in case somebody doesn't understand or realize Hitler was an evil person was a bad guy he did horrible things okay let's put that out of the way first of all now how did he manage how did he succeed in building up this enormous military in just this this short span of about 6 years so hitler and his party the national socialist party national socialist party nazi party they came to power in 1933 i think and this ended more than a decade you know of political instability and economic disaster mm-hmm. And it, it, it gave a clear direction of what Germany's future should be like, according to the Nazi ideology. So what these guys did, what Hitler and his government did, is that they instituted very strict controls on wages and prices. And by doing that, they ensured that business remained profitable. And they sought to bring the inflation down. They also, what they did was they took control of all the labor unions in Germany. So this ensured that workers would not uh, hold the country hostage. They would not, uh, you know, strikes and labor actions, all of this was prohibited. So because of this, uh, it, it ensured that businesses became profitable and inflation went down. Then the, the Nazi regime promoted self-sufficiency. They encouraged or rather insisted that Germans should buy German-made products and they cut down on imports, they limited the imports of these things. So this helped boost the domestic economy and domestic production and it helped protect and promote domestic economy and domestic production. Then they promoted and established a system of autarky. What is autarky? It's a nation that is an autarky, is a nation that that is self-sufficient in all the raw materials and all the basic things. Russia is a good good example. They don't need to import anything from anywhere. They have everything within their own territory. So the Germans tried to establish, they established a kind of autarky to create a closed economy that was self-sufficient and not dependent on foreign uh, imports and independent from foreign influence. They also restructured the banking system. They nationalized many banks. They centralized the control like it is the way it is in an empire. So this uh, stabilised the financial sector, which was ruined by the aftermath of World War One, And they also ensured that businesses got the money that they required. Uh, they had a four-year plan or something, which was all about making Germany self-sufficient in raw materials. And to r- reduce the country's uh, dependence on waste exports and all that. They also established trade agreements with other countries in Eastern Europe, in the Balkans, to boost their exports and boost the economy and we obviously know what they did to the jews so they they, they persecuted jews they expelled jews and other uh, minority people and confiscated their properties and their businesses seized their assets and used that to finance the government's program so that is also also there and then the the nazi regime uh it it uh, embarked upon a huge program of public works the construction of dams, of of these big highways, autobahns, other infrastructure projects. So this created jobs and stimulated the economy. They promoted industry. They they encouraged the growth of industry and the the major things like steel production and weapons and armaments. So this modernized the economy. It, It created huge numbers of new jobs. And by doing all this, they were able to first stabilize the economy and then make the economy boom and because of their emphasis on uh, on the industry the steel manufacturing the arms manufacturing industry that's how they were able to very rapidly build up a very very sizable very powerful and very modern military and they obviously uh implemented a program of conscription which means that german young german men must serve in the army so this obviously gave them uh employment and it it gave jobs for the for the young men and it it expanded the size of the military and they also understood the the uh, the importance of of science and technology research and development so they invested heavily in research and development they promoted scientists who had bright ideas uh and so much innovation came out of this so much innovation uh, whether it is in in uh, the first ballistic missiles were developed by the germans the first cruise missiles were developed by the germans the first uh The first jet engines were developed by Germans. Some of the best aircraft designs came out of Germany. Uh, Military innovations, military strategy. So all of this was made possible by this entire revolutionary restructuring of the financial system, of of the economy, and all these measures that they took. So that is how, in just five or six years, Hitler and his party, the Nazi party, were able to create a an incredibly powerful military, maybe the most powerful military of all time, of of that time, of that time. So, yeah, that is uh, what Hitler did. And obviously, he, like we said, he was a very evil person. He killed lots of uh, innocent people and eventually he dragged his country into ruin. So, yeah, the, the most important quality a leader should have is that he must succeed. And Hitler failed and he ruined his nation in the process. And the result is that Germany is still under US occupation as of today. Yeah. <clears throat> Mazar Chachar says, what were the reasons for behind the recent re-establishment of ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Who were the key players to, that brought about the two nations uh, that brought the two nations to the negotiating table? And what concessions were made by each side? Moving forward, what does the future of the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran look like? And what implications could it have for the broader Middle East region? So let's understand what went wrong in the Saudi Arabia Iran relationship see first of all it's a religious sectarian issue the Saudis are a Sunni nation and uh, Iran is a Shia nation so it's a Shia Sunni thing that the two don't get along Um, then um, we also know that Saudi Arabia has been under U.S. sway U.S. um, it's essentially a U.S. client state it's been that way for the longest time And after the Islamic revolution in Iran, Iran is seen by the U.S. as one of its primary enemies. And the Americans have imposed very harsh sanctions on Iran and tried to totally ruin Iran's economy. And Saudi Arabia is on the side of the U.S. And Saudi Arabia also supported Iraq during during the Iran-Iraq war. So all of this historical baggage is there, this is the, which is why the, the two sides don't uh, trust each other. And there's a huge amount of hostility between the two. Uh, in the in the 1990s and early 2000s, there was a, a period of good relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. They even uh, came to certain agreements and all that. They signed some agreements of cooperation, friendship, all that. Uh, then what happened in recent times is, I believe in 2016 or something, the Saudis executed a, a dissident who was a Shia or something like that and that is the incident that prompted the, the, Iran to break off its relations with Saudi Arabia. There were protests in Iran and Saudi uh, embassies were stormed or something like that um, and because of this this escalating tension and hostilities <coughs> the two nations broke off diplomatic ties. This is in 2016. Uh, Now what we see is that there is a new leader, new ruler in Saudi Arabia, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He is the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. He is focusing on modernizing and transforming Saudi Arabia. Uh, Today, you see that the U.S. is no longer dependent on Saudi Arabia for oil. The U.S. is more or less self-sufficient. The U.S. is now a net exporter of oil and petroleum products. (coughs) And... uh, So the Saudi Arabian regime realizes that uh, you cannot keep on banking on oil forever. The only reason for the incredible prosperity in Saudi Arabia is is the oil production. So you can't keep banking on that forever. So Mohammed bin Salman is trying to transform Saudi Arabia. He has made um, the nation a little more liberal, a little more progressive in the real sense. I mean, women have been given rights for a change. They can now drive, they can now keep their hair open, uh, show their hair in public or something like that. Yeah. So there are reforms there. Uh, And they... Mohammed bin Salman has this this uh, plan twenty thirty or something. By twenty thirty, he wants to totally transform Saudi Arabia and make the economy more dependent on on uh, tourism and other things. So uh, there is a transformation that's happening in Saudi Arabia, and for the nation to remain prosperous and and uh, for the long term, in the long term, they will need to have peace in the region. Now in now Iran and Saudi Arabia are embroiled in proxy wars. Uh, There's a big proxy war that's happening in Yemen that no one talks about. It's a horrific human rights disaster that no one talks about. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Houthis are supported by by Iran and the opponents of the Houthis are supported by the Saudis. And this proxy war is going on. And the two nations, Saudi Arabia and Iran, have tangled in other places as well, like Syria and uh, other places. So there is this long-standing hostility between the two nations. But Mohammed bin Salman realizes that the nation, the, the region needs, needs peace and stability for his nation to keep prospering. The Iranians are also, they have been suffering from U.S. sanctions for a very long time. They would also like to see some, some stability and better relations with the neighbors. Uh, and obviously the, the U.S. influence, not power, U.S. influence in the region is decreasing. It's waning uh, there is a um, rapprochement of sorts between Saudi Arabia and Israel as well. So oh, there's a very complex scenario there. So it is in both nations' interest to re-establish diplomatic relations and to, to tone down to some extent the hostilities. The Yemen war will still go on. It's not that easy to end that war for various reasons, which I will not uh, go into right now because that's this is not the topic. Uh, so that's why this... This development has happened, and the Chinese have taken the initiative to bring the two nations together and, and have the agreement or whatever it is signed in Beijing. And the official statement given out by the Saudi Foreign Ministry uh, recognizes the fact that uh, China played a role in this, you know, a significant role in this. So the diplomatic relations are now reopened, and both nations will reopen their embassies in both in the respective uh, nation within the next two months, and. Uh, both nations apparently want to be part of BRICS as well. So for that also, it, it makes sense to reopen, re-establish diplomatic relations. So it looks like... Uh, so the Saudis would like to kind of wean themselves off of US influence. The US has too much power in the region. Uh, they would like to embrace a more multipolar world. Uh so the, these are the developments that's happening. So the what is the future of the relationship? I think the Yemen proxy war will continue. Unfortunately, it's terrible for the people of Yemen, but that's what it is. It's not that easy to disengage from that. Even if Saudi Arabia withdraws its support from one group, but it, it's it's a very complicated issue. It's an issue that goes back more than a century, and definitely since the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, it's it's a proxy war that's essentially been uh, this. Uh, The war is happening between the Houthi rebels and the government. The government in Yemen is supported by the Saudis. The Houthis are supported by Iran. Now, the Saudis got embroiled in this at the behest of the US, actually, if you go back in history and study some history. So it's a very complicated scenario. So there's going to be hostility. There's going to be tensions. But at least they're talking now and they have diplomatic ties. And hopefully in the future, they may, you know, succeed eventually in the long run bring down the tensions and establish more friendly relations uh, so in the broader Middle East Middle East region you are seeing a shifting of priorities uh, every nation realizes that uh, you cannot keep on depending on the US forever the US influence is waning, not power influence is waning, the Chinese are trying to show that, you know, and the Chinese are also making this play The Chinese are trying to show the world that we have this diplomatic influence and we can get two enemy nations together, sit down together and resolve the differences. And they may want to play the same role of a mediator in the Ukraine conflict as well. That may be the big game they are playing. So that is the situation. That is what's happening right now. Uh, The Middle East is extremely complicated. It's been ruined and totally complicated by the West. So we are a long way off from from complete normalcy and and peace in the Middle East. Daniel Nicholson says, with the soon-to-be-formed integrated rocket force as the fourth military arm of the Indian Armed Forces, is India now looking at a contactless war strategy vis-a-vis China? How long would it take us to attain the level at which the people's liberation army rocket force already are interesting question so yes india is about to form the what what is going to be called the integrated rocket force of the indian military it's going to be the fourth in military uh, fourth arm of the indian military after the army navy and the air force so uh, so we have so we, india is more or less self sufficient when it comes to missiles especially when it comes to ballistic missiles uh, when it comes to cruise missiles we are still uh, perfecting the technology when it, we have this uh, subsonic missile what is it called nirbhay is it so in which we we are developing the 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 motor the turbofan motor i think it's called the manik or something it's under development and it could soon enter uh, production. So once we have that, the indigenous, the, the the subsonic cruise missile will be 100% indigenous. When it comes to ballistic missiles, India is 100%, 100% totally indigenous. When it comes to the supersonic BrahMos, it is significantly indigenous but the i think the guidance system and the ramjet motor is is imported from russia and because of the terms of the brahmos corporation it's gonna be that way for the foreseeable future that we will keep on importing the ramjet motor ramjet engine and the guidance system uh, from russia but uh, i think it's time that india should develop its own ramjet and scramjet rocket engines and maybe come up with new missiles new hypersonic missiles or supersonic missiles uh, but overall india is in a very good position when it comes to missiles uh, we also have uh, so these days you know what kind of war has war fighting has changed completely historically what you would have is that if there are two enemy nations adversarial nations let's let's put something on the map and just take a look at the India Tibet border because that is an excellent example of what we are talking about here. So let's put that on the screen. So we have a, this lengthy India Tibet border which stretches from Arunachal Pradesh all the way to uh, Ladakh and uh, Jammu and Kashmir. So in the past, historically, when two nations had a shared border and they were adversaries and they went to war, it was The war always started at the border with the two forces facing each other. That's where the initial battle would happen. And then the war will go in one direction or the other and maybe move into the territory of one nation or the other. That's how typically, historically, wars were fought. Today, it's the other way around. We have seen how the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict has gone. We have seen how the Ukraine conflict has gone. Wars are now no longer... uh, it's, it's like like daniel says contactless wars so the first salvos of the war will be f- will be done by by long range long range systems typically by missiles so the the first strikes will always be at the command centers at the ammunition depots at the at the uh, uh, army and whatever bases at the airports at places where you have tanks and ammunition and and uh, troops and all that so it's going to be deep inside the enemy's territory that's where the first salvos would be fired and because nowadays rockets uh, i mean missiles can can be quite accurate and pin and and hit targets with pinpoint accuracy that's become the more the case so these days it's the the first action is deep in the enemy's territory on both sides territory and it's uh, typically it's the the two uh, two armies that face each other along the border they will typically be the last to engage each other in combat so the entire order of battle has been reversed essentially that's how modern wars will be fought so when it comes to the indian army we have uh, we have artillery which is guns then we have rockets not missiles but rockets which typically have a range of about 90 kilometers at maximum And then we have uh, missile systems, short-range ballistic missile systems, like the the Pralay, for instance, which have a range of, I don't know, how much is it, 200 kilometers, 500 kilometers, maybe 700 kilometers. So you can target uh, the enemy's assets at various different ranges using all this. So it makes sense to have an integrated rocket force uh, otherwise what will happen is that various the the, armed fo- the the army will have its own doctrine of how to use missiles, the air force will have its own doctrine of how to use missiles, the navy will have its own doctrine and rubric of how to use missiles, but you want, and, and they may not talk to each other as efficiently as you would want them to, I mean, we have seen, we have learned the lessons of the Kargil war and all, you know, when the army wanted air support, the air support took like two weeks to come, and, and that sort of thing, I mean, I may be wrong what the time duration was, but, you know, there are all these issues that that have occurred in the past. So what we would like to have is a single integrated rocket force where all the decision, which is like all the decision making is done within itself. And uh, as per the situation, we can use the rocket, the missiles, wherever required. So it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the exact structure of how it's going to be structured is not uh, yet uh, known to us, but it it needs to happen soon. And for that to happen, we need to have sufficient quantities of missiles. It's not enough to have 400 BrahMos missiles lying around in the country. Obviously, they'll be deployed in, in the right places, but we need thousands of missiles of various kinds. And we also need to have conventional ballistic missiles. We have the strategic forces, uh, whatever it's called, which which take uh, takes care of our nuclear deterrent, which is nuclear tipped ballistic missiles, the Agni missiles, and all that. Uh, we so the the integrated rocket rocket force will be a conventional force, not a nuclear armed force, as far as I can see, and they will have ballistic missiles of various ranges. Uh, So, you know, when you launch a ballistic missile, it's impossible for the recipient of this package, (laughs) the the nation that you're targeting, it is impossible for them to know whether it is a nuclear-armed missile or a conventionally-armed missile. So when somebody launches a ballistic missile, you don't know what warhead it carries. Um, That is one of the issues when it comes to ballistic missiles. But yeah, when you have two nuclear-armed enemies and neighbors, you kind of, don't worry about that too much. Uh, so we have the 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 Prale missile, which is similar to the Iskander Russian Iskander missile, short range ballistic missile. We have uh, the Nirbhay missile, the Shaurya missile. We have a whole menu. Of various kinds of missiles. So it makes a lot of sense to form an integrated rocket force and give them sufficient missiles to fight an extended war. At least a short duration war, you will need at least a thousand missiles, I would say. But one, I would say ideally India needs to have a stockpile of at least 10,000 different missiles of various, various kinds. Uh, so yes, India definitely is learning the lessons of the various wars that are being fought in the 21st century. Uh, it makes sense for us to invest in an integrated rocket force to be able to fight a contactless war against china and to to make them understand that it's not it's not in their best interests to fight a, a war with india so how long will it take us to attain the level at which the which the chinese rocket force is at i think it will take at least 4 to 5 years for india to attain that uh, level first of all we have to Create the integrated rocket force. We have to structure it properly and then we have to uh, arm it with sufficient numbers of missiles. So, I'm sure we can crank out the missiles at a reasonably rapid rate. Missiles are much easier to manufacture than aircraft. Aircraft are extremely complicated machines. Missiles are much simpler. So, we can crank out hundreds of missiles a year, maybe thousands of missiles per year if you can. Um, Construct the facilities. So it may take four to five years for India to create an effective deterrent that the Chinese would signif- would really worry about. All right, next question. Khomithet Gosudar Cwenoy says Can you tell us about the invasion of the Kievan Rus by the Mongolian Empire and why it? doesn't have an influence over modern-day Ukraine, which is in Central Asia and the Caucasus region. Interesting question. The invasion of the Kievan Rus by the Mongolian Empire. Yeah, that's that's an event in history that uh, is not really spoken about a lot. Let's take a look at the geography. So, so about a thousand years ago, we had the Kievan Rus, which is the Slavic peoples who were ruled over by a bunch of Vikings, the Rus, and that's how the, the nation eventually got its name, the Ru- nation of Russia. Uh, so their capital originally used to be Kiev. The capital of the Rus people was Kiev. Right now it's the capital of Ukraine. So at that time it was Kiev, and they were called the Kievan Rus. Now, this invasion of the Kievan Rus by the Mongolian Empire happened in the 13th century, after the death of the great Chinggis Khan. So Chinggis Khan did not ever fight a war without just causes. He did not just randomly conquer a country because it was was rich and he wanted the wealth. He fought for genuine reasons and just causes. But after his death, his descendants started fighting wars for the sake of conquering, for the sake of conquest. So they would fight unprovoked wars. So, after Chinggis Khan died, I think in 1227, his son Ogoday Khan became the great Khan of the Mongols, the great Khagan. And he inherited his father's great general, Subotai. Subotai Bahadir, the valiant, one of possibly the greatest military general in the the, the whole of history. So... uh, So uh, this guy, the the new Mongol Khan, the son of Chinggis Khan, he instructed his general Subotai to mount an invasion of Europe. So I think it was in 1237 or so that Subotai went with his army. And uh, he, one of the, the official leader of the Mongol invasion was, I think, Batu Khan, the son of Jochi, who was a son of Chinggis. So Batu happened to be Chinggis Khan's grandson. He was the official leader of the Mongolian army, but the real leader was Subotai. So they invaded the Russia, which was then, uh, the capital was in Kiev. And I think within a couple of years, they were able to conquer it very easily. I mean, it wasn't that easy as, as I make it sound. There were battles, and sometimes it was quite difficult, and sometimes the Mongols may even have lost a battle or two. But overall, because of the incredible, unparalleled brilliance of Subotai, they were able to, make reasonably short work of the Rus' and they were able to take Kiev and other cities. And they allowed the Russian princes or or, or the ruling uh, class to keep on ruling, but they made them their vassals. They extracted heavy tribute from them. so that was the invasion of the Kievan Rus by the Mongolian Empire. And eventually this gave rise to what is called the Golden Horde, which was the, the Mongols who ruled Central Asia. Eventually they became Turkified, eventually. Um, the Golden Horde. So uh, so the invasion of, of the Kievan Rus by the Mongolian, Mongolian Empire happened in the middle of, of the 13th century. And uh, it was pretty harsh, pretty brutal. Um, and and the Mongols ruled Russia for at least a couple of centuries, uh, the Russians were able to throw off what they call the Mongol yoke by the 15th century or so with the rise of Moscow as the new center of power. So that is in brief about the invasion of Rus by the Mongolian Empire. Why doesn't it have it have an influence over modern day Ukraine as it has in Central Asia and the Caucasus region? Because uh, <clears throat> when it comes to Central Asia and Caucasus, These regions became uh, Islamized, Turkified. The Mongols of the Golden Horde eventually themselves became Turkified and because of the process of Turkification, they eventually adopted Islam. Mongolia has never been Islamic. I'm talking about the nation of Mongolia over here. This nation has never been a Muslim nation, but the Mongols who conquered Central Asia eventually became Turkified, Turkicized, and they became Muslims. Because of that, uh, Central Asia and the Caucasus region is, is an Islamic region, is a Muslim region. Most people in Central Asia and the Caucasus region, I'm not talking about Georgia but or Armenia, I'm talking about Azerbaijan, Dagestan, Chechnya, all those regions, which are currently part of Russia. Uh, so because of that, Central Asia and the Caucasus became uh, Islamized and Turkified, whatever we call it. But Ukraine never... This never happened there, because the Russians were eventually able to uh, free themselves of the Mongols and expel Mongols from Russian territory. So, because of that, it never happened there. Of course, there is still a significant Mongol influence in in Russia. Uh, much, I mean. The, the Mongol occupation of Russia did do some good to Russia. They gave them an administrative system, which was continued to some extent, even after Russia became free and Moscow emerged as the center of power. And uh, many Russians would have some Mongol ethnicity, some Mongol ancestry uh, as a result of uh, about a couple of centuries of Mongol op- occupation and some intermingling of people and all that. So that's the legacy of the Mongol occupation of Russia. Uh, and that's why it doesn't uh, it did not have that much of an influence on ukraine abhimanyu says is it true that the earth's axis was straight before the youngest, younger dryas event and it tilted after this calamity uh good question let us take a look at the earth's axis so you can see earth in space it spins like this it rotates yes and it it uh, orbits the Sun. The orbit is not a circle, it's an ellipse. It's like a squashed circle. So the Earth goes around the Sun in an elliptical orbit, and all the planets go, al- go around the Sun in similar elliptical orbits. And the, all the planets, they go around the Sun in the plane of the Solar System. The plane of the Solar System. Now, when, it, when we take a look at the plane of the Solar System, we'll find that the Earth's axis of rotation is not straight, it is inclined somewhat uh, So The Earth's axis of rotation, it's rotating like this and it's going around the Sun So the axis of rotation compared to the plane of the solar system is not straight, it's inclined And there is a precession also, it's called the precession of the, equi- of the equinoxes So the question is, was the Earth's axis of rotation straight at 90 degrees to the plane of the solar system Before the youngest dryest event, and did it tilt after this calamity? So the younger dryest event is something that happened about 11 or so thousand years before today. It was a sudden period of global cooling, and they we have discovered evidence of an asteroid or comet or or space rock strike. Um, A hidden a buried crater has been discovered in Greenland a crater, which is an impact crater. Uh, and other evidence may also exist of, of an asteroid strike around this time. So maybe it was an asteroid strike that contributed to the sudden cooling event. So that's called the global adrius, uh theory. Maybe that's why it happened. So the question is, was this space rock uh, or asteroid impact on Earth, the event that caused the tilt of the... Of the of the Earth, of the axis of rotation of the Earth. Well, it's not the case. Uh, The Younger Dryas event, if it was caused by an impact from a space rock, was not that significant. It did not cause a global extinction event, which means it was a small impact. 66 million years ago, there was an enormous impact, the Chikshulub impact event. Uh, Let me show you where where it happened. It happened in Mexico, in the Yucatan Peninsula. Where is Yucatan? Here it is. This is Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, south of the Gulf of Mexico. Let's find the, cha- the town of Chicchulub. Where is it? Merida. And I'm, where is it? One second. Should be somewhere here. This definitely is Yucatan. Okay, it's it's somewhere here. I'm (laughs) temporarily unable to locate it. Let's just search for it. And it will zoom in. There we go. Here it is. So this is approximately where the impact happened. Now, this was a massive, massive impact. It was much larger than anything that happened during the Younger Dryas event. The impact crater itself is about 180 kilometers in diameter. Enormous. Half of it is under the ocean, under the the sea in the Gulf of Mexico. This was a major impact event and the the object, the space rock that hit the earth was about 10 kilometers in diameter. Enormous. Like like a small city. Like a big city actually. 10 kilometers in diameter. So that's a massive impact. So the Younger Dryas event was very small compared to that. So it's clear that the Younger Dryas event did not uh, cause the the, the tilt in the axis of Earth's rotation. I'm sure pretty sure it was not even the <coughs> excuse me I'm pretty sure it was not even the Chicxulub impact that caused the axis of rotation of the earth to tilt. It would take something much much larger to tilt the axis of rotation of the earth. So maybe this event was was the event that caused the creation of the moon itself. So this, this hypothesis that Earth, the, the young Earth, was hit by a small planet which no longer exists. It was a major collision. And this collision was so massive that huge amounts of lava and, and the magma and all that was thrown out into the into Earth's orbit It eventually coalesced together and formed the moon. So an event, an impact of that size between Earth and, and, and a small planet. That would be something that would cause the Earth's axis of rotation to tilt. Not some small tiny space rock, 10 kilometers or so. That's not big enough to cause such an event. So most likely it was a much older impact in the early days, young days of the solar system that caused the Earth's axis of rotation to tilt with respect to the plane of the solar system. Okay, Swapnil says, how does blood work against gravity? In the sense that it reaches our brain from our heart. Uh, Good question. So, we feel the force of gravity, which is because of the mass of the earth. So, everything falls down. It falls towards the direction of the center of the planet. So, how does blood work against gravity? How does it reach our brain from the heart or wherever it is? How does the blood reach my fingertips and all that? How does it happen? So understand this. Uh, Let's say you take a piece of glass and you rub it with with silk or whatever. It's going to get charged, yes? And if you have a piece of paper lying on your table and you bring this piece of glass to uh, the charged piece of glass towards the the, the piece of paper, it's going to pull up the piece of paper and the paper will stick to the glass. So, this small electric charge is able to defeat the entire gravitational strength, pull, of the entire planet. If you have a small magnet, small magnet, and you have a pin, metallic pin, iron pin on your table, this tiny magnet, you bring it towards the pin, the pin will be pulled up and it will stick to the magnet. So, this tiny little magnet is able to defeat the gravitational pull of an entire planet. What does this tell us? it tells us that gravitation the force of gravity is the weakest force we know of it's incredibly weak a tiny little magnet can defeat an entire planet right so understand that gravity is entire, it's incredibly weak let me tell you exactly how weak it is you we don't see them but there is something called a neutrino a neutrino is a kind of elementary particle and uh, the sun gives off neutrinos. So trillions of solar neutrinos, which are given out by the Sun, they pass through the Earth every second. They pass through us every second. Right now, there's a whole flux of neutrinos passing through me, and I have no idea. We don't see them, we don't feel them. Neutrinos, these elementary particles, they interact through the weak force, the weak nuclear force. And this force is incredibly weak. yeah. But the truth is that gravity is even weaker than the weak nuclear force. Gravity is a million, trillion, trillion, trillion times weaker than the neutrinos weak force. So such a force, such a weak force, it's so easy to defeat it. A tiny magnet can defeat the force, the gravity of an entire planet. So how does blood defeat gravity and work against gravity because the heart pumps it and the heart is stronger than the gravitational pull of the planet. So The heart keeps pumping the blood whatever times per per minute, I think, depending on person to person, between 45 and 70, 80, 90 times per minute. So it's the action of the heart, heart's pumping, that pushes the blood throughout the body and wherever it is supposed to reach. It's that easy to defeat the force of gravity of an entire planet. Incredible antriksh Saini says, what was the original name of the Hindu Kush mountains? The original name of the Hindu Kush mountains was the Upari Shena mountains. Upari Shena It's Sanskrit, obviously. Uh, so Upari Shena means means uh, Shena, The word Shena in Sanskrit means eagle. So these mountains were so tall, so high that even eagles could not fly above them. That's what it actually means. Uh, so so that's what the original name was. Now it's called the Hindu Kush, the killer of Hindus. And there's a so horrible, blood, bloody th- story behind that. And I'm sure we all know what the story is. After the invasion and occupation of India by the Turks, millions of Indians, mainly women and children, were taken away as slaves and they were made to pass through these mountains, these frigid mountains. Indians, they lived in the Indian subcontinent. They were used to warm weather and lots of them died in those snowy passes of the mountains. I'm sure if you go and do some archaeological work there, you may find frozen bodies of Indians who died there. And those who survived were taken to Central Asia and sold off in the bazaars of Bukhara and Samarkand as slaves. And you will see even today lots of Central Asian people who have some Indian appearance. And you will see lots of Indian looking people in Arabia as well. in Yemen and all, all that. So that's why the name changed from upari Uparishena to the killer of Hindus, Hindu Kush. The original name was the Sanskrit name Uparishi in the mountains. Gaurav says, "What, What do I think about there being a stagnation in the field of theoretical physics since the standard model came out? What do you expect, where do you expect the next significant breakthrough to be? So yes, it is true that physics, theoretical physics has hit a brick wall. The last great major breakthrough was in 1980 or 81, which was uh, the proposal of cosmic inflation, for which we have found experimental evidence, cosmic inflation. Uh, After that, there has been no new breakthrough in theoretical physics, none whatsoever. Why is it so? It's because of groupthink. It's because a certain mafia has taken over theoretical physics, especially in the West. The string theory mafia. String theory is a failed theory. It has produced no experimentally testable predictions. It has made no predictions that can be experimentally tested. It's all math, math, math. And you will see dozens of papers, research papers coming out every week in string theory. But it doesn't advance the field of physics or our understanding of the universe even one inch. So because all the funding is being poured into into string theory and, and all that, that's why... There is no space for research in other in, in, in other avenues. It's all group think. Everybody is made to think the same. Everybody needs to do their PhD in theoretical mm-hmm. physics. If you want to be a professor, a tenure track professor, you need to be in, 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 in string theory, in string theory. I didn't mean theoretical physics, I mean string theory. So string theory has taken over the academic system, the physics, theoretical physics uh, uh, academia in the West and it's producing no results whatsoever. So there are lots of brilliant physicists, young physicists, older physicists, but they are all doing the same thing. So that's why no results are coming out and there has been no progress in theoretical physics since the 1980s, since the early 1980s. There must be, you know, when quantum mechanics was first discovered, you had people who thought differently. Einstein thought very differently from everybody else. Today that is discouraged. Today, that is strongly discouraged. You you do research in a very different uh, different way, your paper will not get published. It will not be approved for publication. So that's the kind of thing that's happening. Uh, And that's why there is this stagnation. So where do I expect the next significant breakthrough? There are so many open problems in physics. We understand next to nothing of the universe. 95% of the universe is invisible. It's dark to us. 70% 70% is dark energy, 25% is dark matter. We have no idea what these things are. Various theories and models have been proposed, but none of them has been experimentally verified or falsified thus far. So 95% of the universe is not understood at all. Zero. So that's a huge unsolved problem in theoretical physics. Dark matter, dark energy. What about the baryon asymmetry, the matter-antimatter asymmetry? I mean... According to physics theories and models, when the universe was formed 13.8 billion years ago billion years ago, in the Big Bang, there should have been equal amounts of matter and antimatter produced. But clearly, there was slightly more matter produced than antimatter. What is matter and antimatter? What are these things? These are different kinds of particles which have opposite properties, such as electric charge. When they come together, they annihilate each other and produce pure energy. So why do we have more matter than antimatter? We still don't have the answer. So that's a big, big breakthrough we need to come up with. What are black holes? What is inside a black hole? Why do we have singularities? Clearly something is wrong there. That needs to be solved. Quantum gravity, we, we don't understand gravity at all. General relativity does not is not compatible with quantum physics, with quantum mechanics. In quantum mechanics, space is smooth and time is absolute. In general rel- rel- relativity, space is curved and time is relative. They are totally different ways of looking at the world. So these two don't match but we need to make them match to to come up with a, a quantum theory of gravity so that we understand how the how gravity is relevant in the ultra microscopic quantum world. That's another big outstanding problem in physics. There are so many more. What about all these free constants lying around in the, in the standard model oh, the the mass of the the masses of the quarks how I mean what is the explanation of why a certain quark has a certain mass? Why does the electron have a certain mass? Why do various uh, subatomic particles, elementary particles have specific masses? We have no idea why. These are called these free constants. We have no idea why these masses are the way they are. So we have no theory of that. So once again, that's a huge open question, a huge open problem in physics. Then, uh, a grand unified theory. We would like to Understand how the various forces of nature are related. We need to unify them into a single framework. What are the four forces? The gravitational force, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and the electromagnetic force. Uh, so, how do we unify? How do we understand all these forces in a single frame as, as part of a single framework? When the Big Bang happened, all the forces were unified into a single force, the grand unified force. So, we have no idea about that as well. So that's something people have been, the best physicists in the world have been working on for close to a century, and we have made no breakthrough yet. So these are some of the problems, the open problems in physics. There are many more. So uh, the ultimate fate of the universe. We know that uh, the universe began 13.8 roughly billion years ago, but what's going to be the ultimate fate of the universe? Are we going to have a big freeze? Are we going to have a big rip? Are we going to have a big crunch? Big freeze we, means eventually the universe will keep expanding, keep expanding, keep expanding, and eventually all matter will be so widely f- dispersed, far over, apart from each other, that uh, it will not be able to interact with itself. And uh, we will, the universe will reach a state of maximum entropy disorder, and this will this is called the heat death of the universe. That's one possibility. Then the big rip is mean is when dark energy becomes so aggressive that not only are Planets ripped out of their orbits from the stars. The moon will be ripped out of the orbit of the earth. But so, but atoms will be ripped apart. Molecules will, will be ripped apart. Subatomic particles will be ripped apart. Even the fabric of space-time itself will be ripped apart. That is the big rip. The big crunch means eventually expansion stops and the universe starts contracting. Eventually it collapses upon itself and becomes a new singularity and maybe a new Big Bang happens. So these are the possibilities that exist. But we don't know what's actually going to happen. There are so many open problems in physics. What is the dimensionality of the universe? How many dimensions does, does the universe have? We see the world in three dimensions and we experience something called time. So those are four dimensions that are involved in general relativity, four-dimensional space-time. kaluza klein theory is about five dimensions in the universe. Uh, super string theory says there are, it requires 10 dimensions. M theory describes space-time as having 11 dimensions. Bosonic string theory says there are 26 dimensions. And Dr. Subhash Kak has come up with a new theory which says that the universe has E dimensions. E is called Euler's number, E is equal to 2.7183 blah blah blah. It's, it's, it's an irrational number, so the universe may not be 3-dimensional or 4-dimensional, it may be E-dimensional, it may be 2.7183 dimensional, which is a mind-bending prospect. But the theory does seem to make a lot of sense and it throws new light on the origin of gravity and the uh, on the open problems of dark matter, dark energy and even the Hubble tension. So there are so many open problems in physics we know next to nothing of the universe and we are talking string theory. We keep on doing string theory which produces no results. So that is why there is this stagnation in theoretical physics because the string theory mafia has taken over all the funding and all the control in physics and there is this uh, this 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 uh, Permeate permeating group think all over the place and in the experimental physics it's the it's the particle accelerators where all the funding goes. so all the funding goes where well no new results are coming out. The Large Hadron Collider is the most experiment uh, the most expensive scientific instrument ever built. It's produced one result it's it's proven Peter Higgs right. A prediction he made in the 1950s or 1960s. The Higgs boson has been discovered. Apart from that, it has discovered nothing new. No supersymmetry, no micro black holes, nothing. So we are dumping money, we are we're pouring money into the wrong avenues. We need to look at different ways of thinking. But we are doing group think. So physics needs to move away from string theory and explore weird, strange, unexplored domains, ways of thinking, let people think differently. Let them come up with ridiculous theories, but at least something new will come out of it. So that is the problem. And that's why theoretical physics is stagnating. It it really makes me very angry. (laughs) Anyhow, I hope that answers the question. VIP says, what is more important in a war? A symbolic victory or a strategic victory? As in Ukraine-Russia conflict, many are saying that the city of Bakhmut does not have much of a strategic significance, but they are still fighting. Okay, let's talk about Bakhmut first. Let's put something on the screen. Since we are talking about Bakhmut, they have been saying this for months, that Bakhmut has no strategic significance. Why are the Russians fighting so much in Bakhmut? Now, what are they saying? Look here. Exclusive. This is from... March 7. Today is March 12. So, this week itself. Uh, uh, This is from CNN. Zelensky uh, warns of open road through Ukraine's east if Russia captures Bakhmut, as he resists call to retreat. So, for the longest time, they were saying the Russians are stupid. And they are fighting in this place, which has no strategic importance. But now, Zelensky himself is saying that Bakhmut is the key to Ukraine. If Russia captures Bakhmut, They will have an open road through Ukraine's east. So, please, my dear friends, please don't trust the media. The media is misinformation. The media is propaganda. The media wants to mislead you. The media is lying to you. All right? So, please understand that. So, Bakhmut is strategically vital. And that's why the Ukrainians are throwing so many unfortunate, hapless soldiers into the Bakhmut meat grinder. And yeah, we know what's happening. The Russians are on the verge of taking the city now. Uh, so, what's important in a war? Important in a war, a strategic victory or a, or or a symbolic victory? It's always a strategic victory that's important in a war. Why do we fight wars? A war has a certain objective, a certain political or geopolitical objective. So, a war is fought to to in in the pursuit of that objective it's not pursued for symbolism or whatever you either want to capture a certain amount of territory either otherwise you want to capture the capital city and effect a regime change you may want to demilitarize a country you may want to denazify a country these are strategic objectives these are geopolitical or, or political objectives that's why you fight wars so if you fight a battle and you do a heroic job, but you don't achieve your political objective, then it's a, it's, it's a loss, even if you win that battle. So what's the only thing, thing that is important in a war is to achieve your the objectives which you had in mind when you started the war. You don't f- start a war out of emotions or anger or because you're furious with something somebody said. You start a war for very clear objectives. And that's the only thing that's important in a war. Roderjit says, in a federal democracy like India, various regional parties are using federalism to promote sub-nationalism for their political interest. Yes. Which is gradually dividing India internally. Yes. The effect of this is clearly visible in South Indian states. If it continues like this, our country's integrity won't just be threatened from the outside, but from inside as well. What is the solution? why is the situation the way it is today? Why do local party, local political parties have so much power that they can even uh, indulge in soft secessionism, soft separatism, because uh, how how are they able to do this? It's because of the Indian constitution. It's because of, of the way India has been created, the constitution. It, it uh, defines India as a union of states or I don't know what exactly it is like. But the constitution is the key to all this. Unfortunately, there is too much democracy in India, which means that uh, the, the regional parties and the regional the states have too much power. I'm not saying they should not be empowered. They should have full freedom economically and, and with respect to local policies. But when it comes to the national interest, only the center should be all-powerful. So when it comes to... International affairs, when it comes to diplomacy, when it comes to military affairs, and, it, when, and, and when it comes to uh, when it comes to the national interest, the center should be paramount. And there are certain red lines that nobody should be allowed to cross under no under any circumstances whatsoever. So, for a nation to remain strong and unified, certain things cannot be allowed to happen, like subnationalism and 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 uh, soft separatism. And, you know, attacks on various languages and and, and, and people from other parts of the nation. This should never, ever be allowed. But in in the current scenario, in the current um, system that we have, it's it's par for the course. So what India needs is a new constitution. It's not that easy as it sounds, (laughs) making a new constitution. Because there is no provision within this constitution that allows this constitution to be uh, discarded and a new constitution to be brought in place. So something will have to be done eventually. By and We will need a really strong leader to, to do this. The current constitution is nothing but a mishmash of Western constitutions. There is nothing Indian about it. Nothing Indian about it whatsoever. So this constitution eventually has to go. And this is what uh, Professor Gautam Desiraju also has spoken about in detail in his conversation with me. He's written a book about this. India needs a new constitution or a constitution that is uh, rooted in Indian values and Indian culture. It should be Indian and Indian civilization. So the current constitution we have is a western constitution. There is nothing Indian about it. and It, it, it is it is uh, creating all kinds of problems in India. So that is the solution. Okay, what next? Ranesh says, in our 10th standard history book. It's written that Mr. Gandhi mentioned in his book Hind Swaraj that if Indians refused to cooperate with the British, then we would have gotten independence in a matter of time. But during the Royal Indian Navy mutiny incident. The Navy mutinied against the British, but why did Mr. Gandhi send Mr. Patel to negotiate with the Navy and to suppress the mutiny? Doesn't that contradict what Gandhi said before? Can we also say that Gandhi was sold to the British later in the independence struggle? Uh, so I don't know what is written in that book, Hinswaraj. I have not read uh, Mr. Gandhi's book. Uh, well, yeah, because I was not so inclined. It's... Uh, not interested. So I haven't read w- his book. I don't know what he's written in that, Mr. Gandhi. What we do know is the events of the Indian, uh, the the British Indian Navy's rebellion, which happened in 1946. They all rebelled. The entire Indian Navy, uh, with the exception of, of one or two ships, rebelled against the British. And the navy was stationed from all the way from the Gulf of uh, the Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf, all the way to the Strait of. Uh, what is it called? The other strait, Malacca, all the way there, even Singapore. So we had this enormous Indian Navy and everybody, all the ships revolted against the British. It was a major disaster for the British. And if the Indian British Indian Army had come to know about this, and if they had rebelled, it was the end of British rule in India overnight, like that. So, what Mr. Gandhi did is that he said, I do not approve of this nonsense. I will not approve of any rebellion against the British. We can only rebel non-violently and through words. No actions. Please, no actions. So, he dispatched Mr. Patel, Sardar Patel, to Bombay. It was then called Bombay. It's now Mumbai, but it, at that time it was called Bombay. So, he dispatched Mr. Patel to Bombay to negotiate with the uh, with the sailors and to make them uh, end their rebellion. So, Mr. Patel came to Bombay. He entered into negotiations with, uh, with uh, the representatives of the Indian uh, Indian Navy. He told them, Mr. Gandhi disapproves of this. Mr. Jinnah also disapproved of that, by the way. So, Mr. Gandhi disapproved of this. And he told them that, listen, you need to stop this. And I give you the assurance that the, no action will be taken against you. No action will be taken against you. Just lay down your arms and, and surrender. So because no political support was forthcoming except for the Communist Party, which has which its own agenda, the Muslim League did not support the mutiny because they wanted their Pakistan and a mutiny would be disastrous for that. And Mr. Gandhi did not support it. So the Indian Congress Party did not, not did not support. So because of this, the soldiers, they, they, they lost their morale and they surrendered. And the moment they surrendered, they were arrested and they were uh, placed under court-martial. So Mr. Patel, whatever assurances he gave, those were empty words. uh, And they were immediately arrested and prosecuted. So Mr. Patel was was Mr. Gandhi's right-hand man. He was a loyal servant and disciple of Mr. Gandhi. Whatever Mr. Gandhi said, Mr. Patel would carry it out. And Mr. Patel was was the... was Mr. Gandhi's means of controlling the Congress party. So, so Mr. Gandhi opposed the mutiny because if the mutiny, the the rebellion had succeeded and the Indian army, which was stationed across the subcontinent had come to know about this and they had also rebelled, that was the end of British power overnight. The British ruled India through the armed forces. Political power flows out of the barrel of a gun. They did not rule India because they had the cooperation of various things or whatever. They ruled India through might and force only. And when their instrument of rule turned against them, it would be the end of the story immediately, overnight. And Mr. Gandhi somehow did not want this. Because then there would have been no partition. And then maybe the armed forces leadership would have taken, uh, taken over. And maybe they would have invited Mr. Bose Back to India. And then Mr. Gandhi would have been sidelined, his party would have been sidelined, Mr. Jinnah would have been sidelined, and Mr. Bose, most likely, who the army ha- held in very high regard, Mr. Bose would have been the leader of India quite possibly. So for the sake of power, for the sake of politics, or whatever you want to interpret it, uh, interpret as, Mr. Gandhi ensured that the, that the rebellion ended and India did not get its independence in 1946 itself. If this had succeeded, India would have gained independence through strength, through force, not through negotiations and politics. And in forty-seven, what happened is that the British gave India so-called independence on a platter. It was a transfer of power from one set of crooks to another set of crooks. And as a result, India is still bearing the consequences of all that, even today. So. That's the story. That's what really happened. Can we say that Mr. Gandhi was sold to the British later in the independence struggle? Later, earlier, if at all, if not, I will leave that to you to decide and to conclude. You are intelligent enough to understand what really happened. Sarang says, I was surprised to find that many of my friends don't think that preserving Indian culture is important. Why do you think this is the case? Is it because of the education system? Is it because of the Western-led media? What can we as citizens of India do to make our country's relationship with English and our own languages similar to that of French and English in France? Their education and everything is in French, but they are not too bad at English. Listen, the French don't really like to speak English. They prefer French. Okay, So why is it so? Listen, if you don't teach anything about your culture in school, then the kids will have no connection with their culture. And then they will feel, that's no. what's the point? There's no harm in, in getting rid of Indian culture. The Indian education system does not teach Indian culture at all to the students. There is no connection. So when there's no connection, there's no value. So that's why your friends don't think that preserving Indian culture is important because they don't even know what Indian culture is. They don't feel any sense of belonging, any sense of connection, any sense of value. That's the reason. The education system is designed to destroy Indian culture. That's what it's designed to do. It's the the continuation of the 19th century colonial education system. Yes, today they will teach you computer science and they will give you MBA degrees and all that, but it's the same education system, the same format, the same purpose. It's not designed to teach you how to think, it's designed to tell you what to think. It's not designed to turn out leaders, it's designed to turn out sheep. So mainly it's because of the education system. See, the Chinese have their own education system. They are also exposed to Western media when Western media when they come out of China, but they don't become anti-China. They don't, uh, you know, turn their back on Chinese culture. It's because the education system is right for them. I don't know what they teach, but I'm sure that they teach Chinese culture and they, and they inculcate a sense of pride in their culture and 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 patriotism and all those things. India doesn't do that at all. The Indian education teacher, the system teaches kids to hate their own culture and their own ancestors. That's the deal. So that's the reason why your friends don't think it's important to preserve Indian culture. They think Indian culture is inferior and bad and misogynistic and patriarchal and blah, 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 blah. All that. You know. Um, what can we do to make our country's relationship with English and our languages similar? Listen, everybody should try and learn their own language. Try and read some books in your own language. Try and learn Sanskrit if you can. One of the things you could do is purchase a copy of some book in Sanskrit and in English or whatever language you prefer. For instance, purchase a copy of the Ramayana or the Bhagavad Gita in Sanskrit and purchase the exact translation in whatever language you prefer. And then read both. You do this this process over a year or so, you will actually end end up learning a lot of Sanskrit. So this is what you can do. Or you can read books written in your, your own native language. Everybody should have some connection with the language so so we cannot blame the keep blaming the government for for everything obviously they are not doing their job of promoting indian languages so let's take the initiative ourselves buy a book in your own native language or whatever language you are fond of and read that spend some time do some some time doing that we need to all all take the initiative that's what we can do as people as citizens Neil Mandel says please guide me how to rebuild curiosity as it was in my childhood currently I'm a teenager how to regain the joy of learn the joy of learning, questioning, reading books, understanding etc my curiosity is killed because of the pressure from society and the education system. harsh teachers, boring useless books, fear, fearful exams which says to memorize everything instead of questioning, we have forgotten to, que- forgotten to question why. Now I hate books, and my mind has stopped observing and questioning the surroundings. Such as earlier, I used to ask questions on topics such as the universe, technology, environment, biology, philosophy, physics, languages. But now I'm trying. Now I'm trying, but getting failures to re- regain my curiosity as it was back then. Listen, you clearly understand that something has happened, and uh, because of the education system and all that, you don't like books anymore. Okay, we understand that we all go through that. Uh, what you really need, see, you actually do understand and you do realize something has happened. So to re to rebuild, re- rekindle the curiosity, you have to, uh, you first of all need some time to yourself. If you're always surrounded by people who all think the same way, then it's impossible to think differently. You need to have some some time alone to yourself in a day, maybe a couple of hours, and then try to go back to the feeling of how it was when you were a child and what things you were interested in. So today, teachers will tell you that your question is stupid or whatever. They will not answer your question. But today you have the internet. So think about those things you used to be curious about and fascinated with and passionate about as a kid, as a younger kid. And today you don't need teachers. Just use Google or whatever it is. All the information is available on the internet. Learn how to search the internet and and study whatever, whatever makes you curious. So it's about, you know, making some space for yourself, finding some time for yourself, your alone time, your private time. In your privacy, you can pursue certain pursuits. You know? So, uh, and not all books are boring. You have to open an interesting book. So if you you just uh, surround yourself with your school textbooks, it's going to remain boring. So it's... it's, uh, when you when there is a distance between you and whatever you were curious about or whatever you enjoyed, there will be a process of climbing up that hill again. So, so I would say find some book or if you don't like books anymore, use the internet. But you have to find a way of of reconnecting with things that you are passionate about. So um, at the end of the day, we all go through the education system. We all face it. And that's not going to be the excuse we can use to, you know, not be curious anymore. You got to preserve that that the thing that was good inside you. You do, you you have to fight for it. So you fight for it fight by finding time for yourself. Let's say two hours a day when you will not allow anyone to distract you, and then pursue your curiosity, rebuild it, reignite it. It's definitely possible. Okay, uh, let's take some questions from the live chat. I have more questions uh, that I. Picked, but let's take some questions from the live chat, maybe 10-15 minutes of that. So if you have any questions for me, then you can ask me now in the live chat and I will try and take some of these. <clears throat> Bobby says, over time, the Indian education system could be world class. It can happen, but it will take some doing. There will be a lot of internal resistance from the stakeholders, those who those who benefit from the way the Indian education system is. And the entire system is built that way. So even well-meaning people will think that the education system, the way it is, is good. So there's going to be a huge amount of internal resistance if any kind of change or reform is attempted. But yes, uh, once, if we have a strong enough leadership, then it can certainly happen. And over time, it can become world-class. Okay, other questions? Um, let's see what other questions we have um, Silicon Valley Bank collapse in the US yes that SVB the Silicon Valley Bank has collapsed it's, it's I think on the verge of bankruptcy or already bankrupt and uh, yeah it, it tells you what sort of system they have until recently just a month or so ago they were saying it was one of the best banks in the in, in the world in the U.S Forbes had given it some some uh, some recognition and all that and just a few days later it collapses so yeah maybe I should uh, in a future episode analyze what really happened there but yeah that, that's what it is um will Putin attend G20 meeting this year in India I doubt if he will attend it See, Mr. Putin is more or less isolated by the West. And uh, I think he would not like to travel outside his country where he cannot control everything. There is definitely, when when you are the the president of Russia and Russia is standing up to the West, there is definitely the possibility and the chance of the leader of Russia being assassinated somewhere. So it is, it is something that Mr. Putin would... Not want to do. He does travel to the to 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 various neighboring countries where he can control the where his where his government can control the situation very well. But uh, but yeah, apart from that, he right now is not traveling much far from his nation. So I think it is unlikely that Mr. Putin will attend the G20 summit this year in the in the at the end of this year in India. I think it's unlikely. Okay. Uh, how to remember everything for UPSC? Well, um, I've never done that, so I don't know. I, I suppose you've got to find some... Uh, see, I'm not the right person to ask this. I have never tried to memorize everything and remember everything. That's not what I do. So, maybe you should join a coaching class or something where they teach you the techniques of how to memorize things and all that. I, I think that's the best answer I can give you. I'm not big on memorizing things and remembering everything, especially information that is not really useful. So everything for you, what you study for UPSC, much of it is really not that useful in real life. How to control smartphone addiction? Find something else to replace that. Find something better to replace that. So smartphone addiction, I suppose it's where you keep scrolling through Instagram or whatever, right? That's what you do. I I guess you have to Uh, find something more interesting that you can do. Maybe go play sports. When you're playing sports, football, cricket, you can't have the smartphone with you. Yeah, So that's one thing you can do. So a couple of hours of that per day, it will make you healthier, stronger, and it will keep the smartphone away. Or maybe if you're so inclined, pick up reading, pick up wrestling, pick up weightlifting, or or go on a run, go on a walk. I don't know. you got to find something else to replace it. That's the main thing you've got to do. Um, Okay, let's see this. Recent research paper indicates the extinction of dinosaurs to Deccan flood basalts rather than the Chukchulub impact. There is now chronostratigraphic evidence of this. Well, I haven't seen this. I haven't seen this. Uh, This is the first time I'm hearing of this. So uh, Deccan flood basalts rather than the Chukchulub impact. See, the extinction of the dinosaurs happened roughly 66 million years ago. And at that time, there were two things, two big things happening. On our planet, one is the Chicxulub impact, which could have been a multiple impact—not just one, but multiple impacts. Maybe the the impactor, the stone, the rock broke up, and there were multiple impacts. That is a possibility. There is this big crater off the west coast of India; it's called the Shiva crater, which also seems to date back to about 66 million years ago. So it could have be, could have been a multiple impact event. Apart from that, there was another major event happening in the world which was the Deccan Traps volcanism. So if you look at the central India, Deccan region you can see evidence of extinct volcanic activity. The Deccan Traps the badlands of India the hinterlands of India. So there was this big super volcano eruption going on at the time. At that time the Indian subcontinent was not part of it was not attached to eurasia at that time it was it was somewhere in the indian ocean over the reunion hotspot which is where the volcanism happened so it is possible that it was not just the impact event the chicshurbe event but also this massive volcanism and all the gas and everything that came out of it that could have together these two things together could have contributed to the extinction event that killed off the non-avian dinosaurs. So when you have a super volcanic, volcanic eruption happening, a subcontinent-sized volcanic activity happening, you will have those the extinction of dinosaurs in India because of that itself. You would not need uh, an impact event half the world away for the dinosaurs to die off so um, there's been a big battle going on for, for the longest time as to what killed off the dinosaurs was it the Chicxulub impact event or was it the Deccan traps volcanism most likely it was a combination of both factors but when it comes to the dinosaurs within India itself who lived in India they would have been affected primarily by the Deccan traps volcanism and uh, so yeah so it's an interesting uh, piece of news that you are uh, referencing over here and I will definitely look that up so these are my preliminary thoughts about what you are offering here Interesting, very interesting. Okay, let's see, what else do we have? Any other interesting questions? Okay this uh, how many planets are there in the solar system well it depends on how, what you call pluto some people say pluto is no longer a planet it is a minor planet or a dwarf planet or whatever it's an, i don't care for me pluto is a planet when i when i was a kid i thought of pluto as a planet and i will always think of pluto as a planet obviously it's very small it's it's, it's comparable in size to earth's moon so uh how many uh, let's let's assume that we will call Pluto a planet, planet. In that case, we have nine confirmed planets in the solar system. Obviously, beyond planet in the caper belt and all that, we will have other objects which are l- lurking around. They have discovered lots of minor planets or planetoids or planetesimals, co- such as Sedna and Quaoar and Makemake and Haumea and whatever the names they've given. Minor planets, smaller than Pluto. There is Eris, which is bl- bigger than Pluto, larger than Pluto. Um, and there could be much more lurking out there in the deep, deep, far-off reaches of the solar system. The solar system—it it stretches outwards more than a light year away from the sun. Uh, there is the Oort cloud, which is this, which is a hypothetical huge cloud of icy objects, which which is, which is where planets, which is where comets come from, and there is the possibility that there could be a a hidden planet somewhere out there because when we look at the caper belt objects and other objects over there, their, their orbits are inclined weirdly, which is something that, that would happen when there is an unknown massive object lurking out there. So there could be a large rocky or maybe non-rocky planet out there, but it's not thus far been det- detected. It's so f- it may be so far from the sun that it may not be visible or really very well visible in sunlight. So We know of nine at least, but there could be more out there. Space is enormous. It's vast. And who knows what else is lurking out there in the far reaches of the solar system. Let's take one more question. Um... Is it true that Mr. Gandhi wanted to dissolve the Congress? Yeah, I believe that he said that uh, once independence is achieved, the Congress is no longer required and the Congress should be dissolved. But obviously, they did not agree with that and the Congress still exists. Uh, Lots of other questions. Um, Ajay Reddy says, "What Can the Rapid Dragon missile launching system be used for our missiles and is it effective? Can it be integrated with high-altitude balloons? I am not aware of this rapid Dragon missile launching system. haven't heard of it, so I will look it up and maybe I can answer this next time. Interesting question. Is the Younger Dryas event mentioned in any Indian scriptures? There are mentions of floods in Indian scriptures. If there was an impact event, like the hypothetical Younger Dryas event, maybe real, then there could have been flooding in various parts of the world, including in the Indian subcontinent. So there is this this story of the flood, the Manu's flood or whatever it is. So that could perhaps reference an ancient flood, which could have been triggered off by the Younger Dryas uh, impact event. So possibly, perhaps, but we don't have clear uh, evidence of that, unequivocal evidence of that. A.K., the guy says, is the U.S. a systematic or institutional dictatorship? See, first of all, understand, it's it's come out in the news, right, that the Pentagon has blocked Joe Biden's administration from going to the International Court of Justice and and complain about Russia. So it tells you that the Pentagon, which is the deep state, the military establishment of the U.S., is more powerful than the White House, than the elected government of the U.S. So the relationship between the Pentagon and the White House is the same as the relationship between Raul Pindi and Islamabad. Raul Pindi is way more powerful than Islamabad. Similarly, the the Pentagon is way more powerful than the White House, than the democratically elected government of the US. The Pentagon is unelected. And the US is a two-party state, which is just one step above a one-party system like the Chinese Communist Party or North Korea. Just one step above that, two-party system. So the US is not really a a, a democracy. Please understand that. You could think of it as, as... a nation that's run by a hidden bunch of people. That's what the US is. All right. Is democracy a sham? In a, Like any system, we would expect democracy to evolve in India, but it seems neither government or people seem to be working on it. See, we need to have a better constitution, a better system, and then democracy will really work. India is the birthplace of democracy. But we had our own system of democracy. So democracy, at the, at the very top, you had emperors and kings. But at the grassroots level, you had democracy. People would elect their own officials who would then work for the people. It was a hybrid kind of system, but it was way more democratic than whatever emerged out of Greece much later. So democracy in today's world is definitely a sham. (laughs) Look at the US. And even in a properly democratic country, when you can rig the system by by indulging in, in, in vote bank politics and all, that defeats the purpose of democracy. When you can do vote bank politics, it totally defeats the purpose of democracy. So overall, democracy is more or less a sham. And and if you have too much democracy, it's actually harmful to your nation. So that's what I can say. Let's not blame the Indian people for this. We have this tendency of self-flagellation. Keep blaming ourselves. It is not the fault of the Indian people that the country is in the situation. It is not the fault of the Indian people that power was handed from one set of crooks to another set of crooks in 1947. It is not the Indian people's fault that this constitution which says we the people was imposed undemocratically on India without it ever being ratified by the people of India. Understand what really has happened. Stop blaming ourselves. But That's what we need to do. And with that, I'm going to end today's session. With that, I'm going to end. Let's take one more. Why is POK now crying for help after 75 years? Also, there is news of a demand for Sindhu Desh in Pakistan. Sindhu Desh, they've been asking for it for for a very long time. POK is now crying for help, and they are saying that Pakistan has given us nothing. For the longest time, they supported Pakistan. For the longest time, they supported Pakistan. When the Pakistanis, uh, the the raiders, the tribals created, uh, did untold atrocities, massacres, in, in Kashmir in 1948, despite that the people of POK supported Pakistan, but now they can see that Pakistan is a, is a failed state and India has progressed way beyond anything Pakistan can ever achieve and, and Kashmir is doing so well now, right? So POK, the people of POK are feeling left out, so now they are crying for help, alright? Because they want a better deal. They want a better quality of life. They want better standards of life. They want better education. Everything is available across the border in India, in Kashmir. But in POK, there's nothing. They are marginalized. They are treated like stepchildren. That is the deal. So that, that's why they're crying for help. But they always supported Pakistan for the longest time. Anyway, we will eventually reintegrate POK with India sooner rather than later. Pakistan is a temporary nation, as you know. It's going to happen soon. Maybe very soon. Let's see. Alright, with that, we end today's session. Thank you very much, everybody for the wonderful questions. It's always fun taking these questions and answering them all. And um, we will see, I'll see you all very soon in the next live stream. Until then, take care and good night, good day, wherever you are. See you soon. Bye.